Welcome to a bonus episode of An Offer You Can't Refuse. I'm your host, Ryan S. Pettengill. If you think back to when I introduced this podcast, I told listeners that one of the reasons I was drawn to the history of organized crime was that the topic intersects with so many other important issues in American history. Not long ago, I took the audience through the criminal career of Arne Rothstein, and I noted how his work laid the foundation for a future generation of criminals to expand upon and thrive. One of the key moments in AR's career was his fixing of the 1919 World Series, what came to be known as the Black Sox scandal. Rothstein's fixing of the series became both a cultural and to some extent a political phenomenon in American life. It is said that F. Scott Fitzgerald's Meyer Wolfsheim in The Great Gatsby was based on Rothstein. Moreover, Major League Baseball will implement reform measures designed to restore the public's uh, faith in the game in the aftermath. We have a special guest with us today and his expertise will help add some nuance, detail and complexity to the lead up of the scandal and what the aftermath is going to mean for sports in the United States. Dr. Andrew McGregor has a PhD from Purdue University and his research interests as well as his scholarship is grounded in sports history. McGregor's work has appeared in blogs as well as the Washington Post and he's currently working on a book focused on the history of college football. Andrew was gracious enough to sit down with me recently and take us through the intersections of crime, corruption, and sport in America. I think you'll find his expertise will fill in some of the gaps left by the episode featuring the Black Sox scandal. I also think that after this episode you'll have a better idea as to what I mean when I say the history of organized crime intersects with other important aspects of American history in really critical ways. In any case, I hope you enjoy. Welcome, Andrew. Uh, thanks for being on our podcast. Appreciate you uh, uh, giving us your expertise on this um, intermixing of sports history with organized crime. I thought we might get our audience a little bit more acquainted with you. Can you tell us a little bit more about your work, uh, your publications, your teachings, uh, what you're working on right now, what you might have in the hopper? Uh, yeah, so uh, I teach uh, Mountain View, part of Dallas College. Uh, so mostly I teach general U.S. history courses. Uh, in the past, I've taught courses on the black athlete and and, and sport history and, and particularly sports and politics and race. That's sort of what I like to focus on. Uh, my particular research is on college football. And lately I've been writing about college football in its relationship with politics and intellectual and anti-intellectual cultures. Um, I have an article coming out in the um, Journal of Sport and Social Issues called The Anti-Intellectual Coach. I recently wrote a chapter about college football during the Cold War for a book on the presidency. And and I've been working on a, on a piece on Bud Wilkinson and the President's Council for Physical Fitness and his role in shaping that in the 1960s. Uh, so generally, that's sort of what my work looks at. I have written on baseball in the past as well. I wrote a, a chapter on Kurt Flood and Hank Aaron, challenging notions of white nostalgia in, in the sport of baseball and in baseball history. Uh, one of the things I'm working on right now is I'm co-editing a special issue of the Journal of Sport History uh, that looks at the theme of sport history and intellectual history and trying to weave those two ideas together and how we might use the intellectual history approach to understand sports subjects uh, in different ways than we have previously. I'm also working on a monograph uh, based on my dissertation about Bud Wilkinson in Oklahoma football. Most of my research, again, is on college football, and I've, I've written in the, uh, the Washington Post Meet by History section about college football quite extensively this past semester, uh, and I do quite a bit of that uh, 
uh, when, when needed, uh, when I can involve uh, sort of current events in sport history. Very cool. Um, so if you don't mind me asking, what drew you into sport history? Uh, was there something, I mean, had that been something that you had always planned on going into before even your graduate school days? What drew you to sports history? I, I learned about sport history sort of in a couple of different ways. Uh, so I knew I always wanted to be a history major and a history teacher of some sort. Um, but I was also an athlete. And so I ran cross country and track in undergrad and then in graduate school, or excuse me, in an under, in undergrad. And then I coached briefly when I first started graduate school. I was a track coach at high school and I was a graduate assistant in my undergrad. Uh, and so it was during undergrad that I started thinking about why are sports the way they are? You know, things like eligibility and, and conference realignment and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, and so I started thinking about sports um, as symbols of society and particularly race. Uh, you know, I grew up in, in Kansas where the most popular you know, team is the Kansas Jayhawks and, and they are predominantly African-American basketball team in a state that is a majority white people. Uh, and, and so that drew my attention. And so I started studying sports in undergraduate um, and in a couple of different ways. I looked at it in Roman history and I looked at it in, in Kansas with, the, with their tradition of track and field, which was my sport. Uh, and that really inspired me. Uh, so when I did go to graduate school, I knew that I wanted to study sports. Um, and so I pursued a master's and a PhD with two advisors that both were experts in sport history. And, uh, and so I wrote a, a master's thesis on, on track and field, uh, looking at Billy Mills, a Native American Olympian. And then when I got to Purdue, I studied with uh, Randy Roberts, and, and he encouraged me to look at college football uh, and, 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 and drew my attention to Oklahoma and the intersection of politics and race and economics and culture uh, there in Oklahoma. And so sports has always been part of my identity as, as an athlete and, and as a scholar, um, although I'm more interested in the larger context, in the cultural, economic, and political, and racial dynamics, rather than the wins and losses and what actually happens on the field. Yeah, it sounds kind of like how we approach the history of organized crime. It's not a uh, who shot whom sort of approach, but uh, it's more nuanced than that. Um, is there any, uh, cause one of the things that we try to do in this series is, uh, uh, provide other resources for people that are interested. Are there any books or articles that you'd recommend, like one or two that you would recommend for someone that would want to know more about the history of sport? Ooh, I wish there was a, a go-to, I mean, there are textbooks that are going to give you a large introduction that are pretty accessible. Support in American Life by Richard O'Davies is one that I recommend. Uh, full disclosure, I studied with him and I've uh, thought about actually doing a, a new edition of that. So that's sort of a personal bias there. Um, it depends really on what sport you're interested in. Um, a lot of scholarly work has been done on boxing and on college football and on baseball. Some of the other sports are a little slower to develop. Um, some of the other themes, you know, race is a major theme, gender is a major theme. Uh, so if you, it really depends. Uh, there's not like a, an immediate, this is the must read first book, um, unfortunately. Okay. Well, um, I know you mentioned that you, you've you written for the Washington Post. Uh, if we want to know a little bit more about uh, some of your articles, what you're working on, um, where, where could we find those? Uh, so I, I, the stuff I've written for is uh, written for by the Made by History, which is a, is a blog section of the Washington Post, and, and I share my work there. Um, I also uh, was the founder and uh, co-editor of the Sport in American History blog, which has a bunch of book reviews and, and some short pieces by scholars, and that's at ussporthistory.com. So that's another place you could look for some stuff. Okay, very cool. Thank you. 
Okay, we're talking to Dr. Andrew McGregor on the intersection of sport and organized crime. And I was hopeful, Andrew, that you could give us a brief overview, especially of early baseball. You know, where did it come from? What did its promoters think that they were accomplishing? And maybe most importantly of all, what led to the professionalization of baseball? Yeah, baseball is interesting. There's sort of a mythic... Um a mythical story about where it comes from, you know, that there's the story of Abner Doubleday and Cooperstown and all of that, that isn't entirely true. Uh, so a lot of people will point to Doubleday in 1930 or 1839 and, and him writing down some rules. Um, the baseball really doesn't develop in an explicit moment in time, or it's not really connected to an explicit person. It sort of evolves slowly from a variety of sort of what we call bat and ball games or stick and ball games. Uh, one of the, one of the predecessors we people point to is, is an English game called rounders. Uh, people will point to cricket, but there were also native American games that had sticks and balls and things. And so it sort of evolved just like most sports do uh, people play it. They share the rules and things like that. So there's not a clear, like, birthday for baseball um double day gets a lot of credit and that's because of some of the baseball heritage industry pointing to him but another person that we really think about when we think about the formation of organized baseball is alexander cartwright uh, and he creates the new york knickerbocker club a baseball club in 1845 um now knickerbocker's baseball was not the same as the baseball we see today baseball's rules have evolved over time um and we see the development of what we would call like the baseball fraternity and, and how, how the game will evolve. Uh, people like to point to the Civil War as a big moment that nationalizes and spreads the game. And it'll be viewed sort of as a reconciliation kind of um, uh, activity where we're people from north and south will play baseball together and they'll get along and they'll have fun uh, but again this this is not the baseball we recognize today that baseball had uh it didn't have outs necessarily it didn't have innings you, you had the first team the 21 aces would win the game you would catch the ball on a bounce and you weren't supposed to strike out you were supposed to hit the ball um there weren't umpires or walks or anything like that and so the game has evolved over time uh, from the mid-19th century to the present as those rules change they get formalized we start seeing um um, you know, baseball becomes very popular after World War, or excuse me, after the the, the uh, Civil War, uh, and not just with white people. I want to mention here we have African Americans playing baseball uh, during the 1850s, 1860s. You have really prominent African American teams like the Pythians in Philadelphia, which featured Octavius Cato, who was a, a very interesting uh, sort of freedom fighter figure. Uh, you also have the Excelsiors in Philadelphia and the Uniques which is a team in Brooklyn. Charles Douglas, the, the son of Frederick Douglas, actually played for a few different black baseball teams in Washington, D.C. Um, and then the African-American color line was officially drawn in 1887, or sort of formally drawn in 1887. There's informal ones before that. So you have African-Americans playing baseball in the 1880s and earlier. Now, what led to baseball to what we see today is uh, the enclosure movement, which is this movement that leads to enclosing open lots and starting to charge fees and starting to see baseball as something that we can make money off of. In 1858, you actually have the National Baseball Players Association formed. Um, in 1869, you have the first entirely professional baseball team, which would be the Cincinnati Red Stockings under uh, their star player was Mike Keen Kelly. And, and that team started making money because they were enclosing their fields, they were charging fees, and they would pay every single player. And so the, the 1869 team is the first fully professional team, but you'd have professional players on other teams earlier on try to, you know, attract 
uh, you want to win, you might play pay what we call a ringer, which would be a really good player to play on your team uh, because you have town baseball, you have major cities, but baseball becomes ubiquitous post-Civil War where everybody's sort of playing the game. And here's where we start seeing a more formalization of rules. As more people start to play the game, as people try to have games between different cities, between different states, you have to agree on a set of rules. And so we see, we see that sort of solidified later on. Um, the game became very popular with the invention of statistics. So Henry Chadwick was the one who invented baseball statistics as we know them. Things like wins and ERA and the box score that we read in the newspaper. We point to Henry Chadwick doing that in the late 19th century. Um, and it helps explain and popularize the game. And that contributes along with the enclosure movement to the rise of baseball as a professional organization, as something that you can make money off of and start paying players. And that will lead to professional leagues. And so the National League we formed in 1876. The American League that we still have today was formed in 1899. And they'll come together and play the first World Series in 1903, the Red Sox and the, the Pirates. And then in 1905, they will play the second World Series. Uh, there's some disputes about why there is no 1904 World Series, and some will argue that the National League saw the American League as an inferior league and refused to recognize their champion. Um, but again, that's sort of the general overview of how baseball develops. Um, there Again, so it was a, a pretty casual game played between people. Um, you start organizing rules, you start organizing clubs, you start paying people, you start charging people to watch the game, and it becomes, with statistics and media coverage, it becomes into this national pastime that we know of today. Cool. Now, now, you mentioned the National versus American League, and you mentioned that the National League came first and kind of saw itself as superior. Um, one of the things that always stands out in my mind about the emergence of the American League was, one, they they played baseball on Sunday, and two, they sold alcohol. Um, is that part of how the National League sort of saw itself as just superior, be that morally or otherwise, than the American League? And if that's the case, does that kind of insinuate that there was a marketing scheme or approach to baseball, professional baseball, from the earliest of points? Yeah, I think part of it is that uh, the National League is the older leagues and they had the better players. And so the American League was sort of a rival league. And so the National League had had different rivals throughout. And so they had clearly they had strict decorum about alcohol and Sunday play and other things like that. Uh, there was the American Association that was a sort of other league before the American League. Uh, but the Ban Johnson, the American League really will form as trying to uh, steal players. And so there's rival for players. And so um, some saw them as lesser of a product because of the players they had. Uh, obviously, there is the Sunday baseball, which allows the National or the American League, excuse me, to become much more popular. Uh, because you can you can drink beer, you can go to a game on Sunday. Um, and so there's the respectability issue. Uh, but again, it's also about marketing. It's about economics. It's about um, rivalry between uh, players uh, and things like that. So it's hard to really say that one was for sure superior than the other as we move forward. Um, but in the early 19th early 20th century, late 19th century, the American League, uh, because it was an upstart league, you know, it was, again, 1899, 1901, we start thinking about them really coming into their own. Um, and, and, and so we will sort of see them being real rivals. In 1902, they actually create a truce 
between the AL and the NL because of that fierce infighting of trying to steal each other's players. And so they had to sort of recognize, oh, I'm a superior league was a marketing thing. Uh, but then you have to make sure that they don't steal your players. Uh, and so you have to start to work with them. And, and this is before we have uh, national um, antitrust exemptions and things like that. And so there there was a big movement of trying to pay your players more or whatever. And, and if you can have Sunday games, or you can have more games, you can have uh, you make more money because you're selling concessions, then that will allow you to pay your players more. Uh, and that's how you uh, up your quality, perhaps. Good, good. That's a uh... That, that brings a lot more focus into my understanding of the early days of professional baseball. So we've been talking to Dr. McGregor on the early days of professional baseball. And the next question that I have uh, does involve a little bit of a historiography question, but uh, do you buy the view of the historian Warren Goldstein in that there was always a built-in incentive for players or teams to use whatever means necessary to get ahead. And if you do buy that idea, uh, do you think that that played a role in the corruption? I'm talking betting, steroids, uh, sign stealing, etc. Did it play a role in the corruption of the game later on in the 20th or 21st centuries? Yeah, so I I do agree with Goldstein. I think um, there's this there's this famous saying in sports, and it doesn't really I don't really know who it's attributed to, but it, it basically goes like this: If you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. Uh, and I think that's more or less been true with with both with professional and amateur sports as well as with you know capitalism more broadly. If you're not if you're not trying to do something, if you're not trying to cut corners, then you're not really trying to win. Um, and 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 I think. Um, Anybody who's a serious athlete will say they will go to whatever means to push the limits. Um, I've written a little bit about uh, an Olympian named Hal Comley, who was a uh, he actually briefly held the world record for the hammer throw in the in the, the 1950s. And, and, and he spoke to Congress in 1973, and he spoke about steroids. And he admitted that basically anybody who was trying to win a gold medal, anybody who was representing the United States was doing steroids. Because steroids were not illegal in the United States uh, before 1973. You didn't need a prescription. You could just take them. And, and so how calmly basically opened up the, the floodgates of basically everybody was doing them. If you weren't doing them, you're lying to yourself. And, and so uh, we knew this, you know, he says this in 1973, but we think about the history of sports. We know that gambling was common in sports. Some people might even say that the entire purpose of sport is to gamble. Uh, gambling is an American tradition from colonial tavern culture and horse racing by the plantation gentry in the South. Gambling and betting is just what Americans do. You see this with every what we might call pre-modern sport like boxing and cockfighting and pool and billiards and horse racing. Uh, today, most people play fantasy football as a form of gambling. And so the same would be with your NCAA bracket pool. And so this tradition was super common in the 19th century in major cities surrounding baseball. You would have pools where you would you would bet a little bit of money. You would try to say, OK, is there, you know, whether it be via statistics that were being developed, like I mentioned with Owen Chadwick, or whether it be, you know, is my team going to win? Are you going to play a picket or uh, pick? them or are you going to have lines and, and so the sophisticated gambling with betting lines and, and margins and things like that and over unders has been developed over time but but more or less gambling is the quintessential american tradition uh and this is something that uh richard o'davies the, the sport historian i mentioned earlier brought to my attention when i studied with him uh gambling in american culture is ubiquitous uh and so what does gambling open us up to why is gambling such a faux pas 
to sports leagues is because of that question of integrity. Um, and, and the sporting culture meant that players and managers often spent a lot of free time in bars, traveling. They would be in bars, they would be in hotels, sometimes they would stop at racetracks, and they were often going to be consorting with um, people who weren't of the best character. Uh, so they'd be gamblers and bookies and prostitutes and other folks like that. Um, and this is why boxing was not seen as a gentlemanly behavior. And this is why there's that decorum of respectability that comes into modern sport in the late 19th century with baseball and with muscular Christianity and college sports is so important because they're trying to separate sports as a means of respectability, as a means of inspiring people and teaching them character lessons where sports as a means of drinking and gambling entertainment. Uh, and baseball has towed this line throughout its history. And so even before 1919, there were lots of people betting on games. There were people shaving points. There were people fixing games and so on. And we have records of some of these things. 1919, it was so obvious. It was just so explicit. And so the Black Sox become sort of the, the example that gets made. Uh, but they are not an exceptional sort of case. This has happened all over the time. Uh, the Black Sox scandal really is something that is when baseball steps in and tries to make a change and tries to make an example out of those involved and tries to lay down the law. Indeed, before, you know, there, there weren't really rules or really laws against fixing games, against betting on games. There were sort of expectations and sort of codes of conduct, but there weren't real clear laws about this. Uh, and so when I think about corruption and sign stealing and, 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 and steroids and all of that stuff, like that's just sports, that's baseball, that's American culture. Uh, as much as, you know, sort of our, our Protestant uh, respectability politics say otherwise, that that's always been there. Thanks. So one thing that we spent a lot of time in this series discussing is middle class reform movements that were really trying to clean up some of the things that you actually mentioned in sport uh, in the late 19th, early 20th century. Do you think that there was uh, uh, an effort on America's middle class to kind of try to clean up baseball? Yeah, I think in some ways that was the, that, so we talked a little about the difference between the American League and the National League. And so the National League, it is that more respectable league because they didn't have alcohol, because they didn't play games on Sundays, et cetera. And so that's part of, you know, trying to be morally upstanding versus the other one, where, where the American League was sort of trying to appeal to the everyday person, uh, a little bit of a lower class demographic. Um, and so the effort to clean up baseball in the 19-teens and 1920s uh, will be a reaction against some of that as well uh and we can talk about that a little bit more later but but again there's this there's this mythology that is building in the progressive era um that if sport is going to survive if organized sport is going to be an important thing in society then it has to serve a purpose and so what is the purpose of organized sport most people today will not say it's about gambling it's not about making money it's about having fun it's about learning these lifelong character lessons it's about this idea of amateurism and things that get baked into the ncaa the NCAA, in fact, is a progressive creation. It's created by, you know, uh, these organizations trying to respond to accusations about violence and, and, and using ringers and paying players and things like that. And so professionalism in baseball is sort of accepted because of a certain degree of respectability that's that's enabled by some of the leaders. And so you have, um, the, you know, the president of the American League and the National League creating sort of the, the – um, 
the National Commission that tries to regulate things in the early early 1900s, uh, that does okay, but it doesn't completely silence the squabbling between owners. Uh, and so there's still questions about this throughout the early 20th century, um, but the progressives are definitely trying to clean up sport and use sport as a model of character development rather than a model of sort of lower class masculinity, drinking and gambling and such. Um, and so that that's one of these major issues that we, we see developing in, in sport history during this period of time. Okay, so we're old enough and most of our audience is old enough to remember how MLB addressed uh, the steroids crisis after it broke. Uh, but what were some of the provisions that the league implemented in the wake of the Black Sox scandal? Yeah, so the first major thing they did was they hired a commissioner. Uh, beforehand, I mentioned that there was a sort of a national commission, uh, commission, so the president of the American League and the president of the National League would sort of come together, and they would they had this truce where they sort of tried to rule baseball and make sure that people got together. There was a lot of infighting amongst ownership of both teams within the same league and different leagues. For example, uh, they, the president of the American League, Ben Johnson and Comiskey, really did not like each other at all. And so how do you how do you deal with this is they, they brought in uh, and created the office of the commissioner and then they hired a uh, former judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis uh, as the new commissioner and they gave him almost un unilateral authority to do whatever he wanted uh, and he was supposed to sort of settle down these concerns and sort of uh, renew the integrity of the game and, and 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 save it from being this disgrace. And restore respectability and all these things like that. And so, commis uh, excuse me, Landis will come in and he will um, he will lay down the law. He'll make sure that everybody knows that gambling on baseball is illegal. Um, he wanted to protect the game from outside influences that led to action on the field, not determining the outcome. And so he wanted to get gamblers away from baseball and he wanted to make very clear. Uh, and so he made an example out of, uh, members of the Black Sox. He will ban eight players for life and threaten to ban anyone else who ever gambles on baseball uh, because that undermines the integrity of the game. And as you just explained a little bit, um, this was a messy era for baseball. You had owner and league squabbles. You had the National League, the American League, and that Federal League all sort of competing for players. Uh, and that resulted in that lawsuit I talked about. And so in 1922, that lawsuit is 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 settled at the Supreme Court, and they will give Major League Baseball a antitrust exemption. And this allows Landis to basically be in charge of what we call organized baseball. Uh, and again, I should mention when I say organized baseball, I mean organized white baseball. This, these rules do not apply to African-American baseball, the Negro Leagues at all. Um, so organized white baseball was ruled by Kennesaw Landis, and whatever he said went. And so this idea of getting rid of gamblers, um, this gives solid backing for the reserve clause, which means that you are under direct control of a team for your entire higher contract unless the team wants to trade you then they can trade you um but it gave basically the ultimate authority to uh land us into team owners and the reserve clause basically there is no escape uh, because there's antitrust exemption that means you can't leave uh you can't go to another league because they uh would be uh there's that monopoly created by antitrust exemption uh and so players are held into contracts in perpetuity uh without compensation from other teams and so this creates collusion amongst all the teams to not steal each other's players uh like the federal league had tried to do 
And so, again, as I pointed to earlier, the, this labor unrest results in these sort of draconian rules that really hamper down the freedom of players, both when it comes to contracts and when it comes to sort of personal comportment and behavior, such as gambling and other things. Uh, and so this results in, in sort of, you know, Sue Joe Jackson being banned for life. So there's the eight Black Sox players. There'll be other players will be banned for life. Most notably, Pete Rose was banned for life because he gambled on baseball and there's evidence of this, uh, and it goes points back to these rules that are established following uh, the 1919 Black Sox scandal. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about Pete Rose. Is he a direct casualty, if you want to call it that, uh, of uh, this reform that gets going in the uh, late teens, early 20s? Yeah, I think so. I th- he definitely uh, – so this doesn't just a play for players. So Rose did this mostly as a manager. He also did it as a player. Um, and – they released some documents. One of the things Manfred did when he became commissioner a couple of years ago was release some of these documents uh, that pretty much proves that Rose gambled on baseball. And and again, because gambling is so ubiquitous in American culture, because so many people participate in gambling, whether it be in fantasy, fantasy sports or daily fantasy or NCAA pools or whatever else, these concerns over gambling, most people like like, so what? What's the big deal? But back then, it means that how can I trust that this is actually a real sporting event? Uh, if, if I'm fixing, you know, gambling, if I'm fixing uh, a game, then it means that I can't actually gamble in a fair manner. I mean, somebody's just going to be stealing my money. And so, so these anti-gambling uh, rules are also to protect the fan who is gambling on sports, which is a, a weird way of, of uh, thing, uh, sort of a weird thing that a lot of people don't think about. Um, but yeah, the integrity of the game is interesting. It's also interesting if you think about these cramping, this, uh, these rules cramping down on gambling and and throwing games and and you know insider information about about paying players to cheat. Uh, when about a decade later, we'll have the stock market crash, which is people doing similar things. Right. So I'm just going to ask you: Should Pete Rose be inducted into the Hall of Fame, in your opinion? That's a tricky question. I think if Pete Rose is allowed in the Hall of Fame, then you have to go back and you have to reevaluate every single player who was banned for life. Uh, Shoeless Joe Jackson, by many accounts, probably was a Hall of Famer. Um, and, and some of the other Black Sox players had, you know, Hall of Fame worthy careers. And so if you if you open that gate for Pete Rose, then you have to open it up for those players from 1919 and earlier who um face similar repercussions you also have to think about what does that mean when it comes to something like a performance enhancing drug uh when it's not illegal you know people like bonds and in um and clemens and these other folks that that the writers are not allowing into the hall of fame now they're not banned for life uh so this is you know maybe not a major league baseball question as much as a hall of fame question uh because the hall of fame in, in itself makes its own rules the hall of fame does not have to follow major league baseball's rules and so the question is Pete Rose not in the Hall of Fame because he's banned from baseball. He's banned from Major League Baseball. He's not banned from the Hall of Fame. That's the Hall of Fame's own rule. I never knew that. So that actually is a very good segue point to my next question. So we've reached crisis mode in Major League Baseball by 1920. So tell me, what does Major League Baseball do to sort of save itself in the aftermath of the of the Black Sox scandal? Yeah, there's uh, there's some interesting dynamics here uh, going on with what Major League Baseball does. And so the 1920s uh, is sort of seen as the end of the deadbolt era. 
the dead ball era is a, an era where the baseball uh, wasn't as live. It didn't fly as far. There wasn't as much bounce. And so you see the emergence of uh, balls that fly, you know, more home runs and things like that. And so one of the major celebrities that emerges in 1923 is Babe Ruth. Uh, I mean, he's playing before 1919. He's playing as a pitcher, but he really becomes a home run hitter in 1923, his major season, uh, in, the, in the 27 Yankees and these other folks. And so we see the emergence of the live ball era or the home run hitting era that brings a lot of people and a lot of celebrities to baseball and you see the development and the cultivation of sort of celebrity personas in the 1920s now this doesn't this isn't unique to baseball uh the 1920s is sort of referred to as the golden age of sports where personality and press coverage is really increasing you see the development of radio and in ball games on radio you see this happening with college football with folks like red grange and new rockney as well um but the 1920s is this period in american history where we're recovering from world war one and you have this search for heroes how do we overcome the sort of disillusionment of world war one but also this disillusionment of the black Sox scandal and so you can link that similarly to the disillusionment of world war one and so heroes like babe ruth and others uh, will, will emerge in the 1920s uh, and they will give America a, a reason to watch the game, a reason to believe in the game. Uh, there will be other heroes besides Ruth. He's the sort of the leading one. Uh, and so, again, as you mentioned, this crisis mode we've seen before, we saw the steroid era following the 1994 strike. And so baseball sort of knew that, oh, we have this major problem. Let's overcome it by creating these larger-than-life heroes, by creating um, – massive home runs that fans seem to enjoy uh and so they they will do what they can to sort of restore the game both in terms of the clamping down and prosecution of folks but also let's give you a reason to to come back let's make this game fun again it's interesting that you mentioned ruth the larger than life personality because i absolutely agree with you um, not not only is he a reflection of the 1920s, a personality that people want to know more about. It leads into celebrity culture. And we've actually talked a little bit about that on this series. But can you tell us how and why someone like Babe Ruth does present this opportunity for baseball to kind of reinvent itself? Babe Ruth presents this opportunity in some ways because of, again, he is this larger than life figure. Um but it's also because of that use of the press. Um, and this is one of the things that I think a lot of people don't like to talk about is that professional sports, college sports, big time sports would not exist without the press. Uh, Babe Ruth, as a person, uh, as a player, he was great. He was a cultural icon. You know, He was involved in advertisements. He was all over the place. Uh, and the press supported him, but the press also supported Major League Baseball in creating an image that was mythical of Babe Ruth. Uh, and so, so George Herman Babe Ruth is really more of an everyday person. You know, he he was known for drinking, uh, maybe not gambling because that was illegal, but he for drinking and womanizing and, and and going out and doing all these things. The press would not report on that. Instead, the press would report on his home runs, his strikeouts. They would report on him going to hospitals and visiting kids and things like that. And they would ignore, you know, his, his, his increasing waistline. You know, he puts on a lot of weight once he stops pitching and he becomes a, uh, a professional hitter for the most part. Uh, there's a story that I've heard that the, the Yankees actually adopted pinstripes because they want to uh, help Babe Ruth look slimmer in his uniform. Uh, and so the press is going to do everything to make Babe Ruth look good, even though he was just like these earlier sporting folks I talked about, who was traveling, who was hanging out hotels and bars and other things and, and consorting with people that are, are not of the highest uh, respectable character. 
Uh, but, but in the search for heroes, we overlook those things. So you mentioned that Ruth consumed alcohol, and I believe I even mentioned that in one of those episodes. And certainly we've talked a lot about prohibition on this series. We've even got a segment uh, that, that goes into uh, some of the more famous or infamous speakeasies. Is it fair to say that one of the reasons that Ruth was beloved by so many Americans was his consumption of alcohol at a time that it was illegal to consume alcohol or sell and distribute alcohol? Uh, I'm not completely sure about that. I don't know how well known his drinking was uh, because the press would try not to report on sort of negative things from people's lives. And so um, I'm not I'm not sure how well known it was that Ruth himself was out there drinking uh, in the press. Uh, people sort of assume things about him. I think Ruth was more appealing because he was this larger-than-life home run hitter. Um, that, that when the press wrote about Ruth, they wrote about him like he would go to orphanages. Ruth himself had been orphaned at a, a young age, and so they they would talk about him and and doing those sort of things and how he was just this big kid that's relatable. Um, and so he was presented as sort of this jovial old man—not old man, but man—who. Um, who sort of just wanted to be a kid for the rest of his life. Drinking certainly was a part of that. Again, this is the year of prohibition. Um, people probably assumed he was drinking without them having to write about it. Um, I don't know of a lot of evidence that they are clearly sort of trying to implicate him as being, you know, flouting prohibition rules, although many celebrities did. You know, even President Harding drank in the White House. So uh, the 1920s is an interesting era to think about when we think about prohibition we think about alcohol and we think about you know that, that connection with organized crime for sure um but we also have to think about sort of when we're trying to create a, a cultivate a cult of personality around heroes to restore the image of baseball the last thing you're going to want to do is destroy that with implicating him on uh things like breaking the law by drinking right good point good point Okay, so one of the things that this podcast has tried to do is really situate the history of organized crime within the broader narrative of American history. So what, what the question that I've got for you is, do you think that there is a future either within the literature or within instruction of sports history and its connections to crime and or corruption? Absolutely. I think... Um... Sport has always been ripe with scandal. And whenever you look at scandal, and sport has also been intimately connected with money. You know, again, I've mentioned sport wouldn't exist without, or organized sport wouldn't exist without media. And the media will bring money because the media needs sport for advertisements. And then sport needs the money to pay players. And so when we think about professional sports, we think about big time college sports, we think about media, we think about money. And we think about doing whatever we can to get ahead to try to win, whether it be with recruiting or paying players, etc. Uh, and so there's a lots of scandals that have, that have occurred throughout the history of sports. Um, uh, and there's lots of different sports you could look at. So we, uh, we've been talking about baseball today, but you could look at the sport of boxing. Boxing has had a long, sordid history of gambling, uh, of the sporting culture that I had talked about. Um, you can think about figures like Don King and Jim Norris. Uh, you can think about the IBC in the 1950s and 1960s and how you need 
quick access to cash. You need controls of arena. You need media. You need places to build your sport. And, and, and then when you become a heavyweight champion, you need to make sure that your men can protect you. And so this idea of what does it take to get me to have a challenge with the heavyweight champion, that is all controlled by uh, sort of these autocratic type organizations. Autocratic top-down organizations are very similar to mafias. They're very considered it's, uh, similar to organized crime, uh, and so there's a there's a deep connection there that could be interrogated much more thoroughly than has been uh, about organized crime and boxing. But you also have a variety of point shaving scandals in, in the NCAA basketball tournament and within the NCAA itself. Uh, CCC, the CCNY, the uh, the City College of New York. Uh, in 1950, 1951, is maybe the most famous point-shaving scandal in NCAA history. Uh, for a long time, uh, the NCAA actually refused to have tournament games at Madison Square Garden because they were concerned about um, the the influence of gamblers and, and mafia folks on players and things like that. Uh, and so point-shaving is this idea where you are, aren't necessarily going to throw a game but if the if the line is you know the over under is a certain point or you have to win by four points or four and a half points you might intentionally miss uh, a free throw or you might you know try to limit the 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 point spread etc. And so this has happened we think in the fifties there there were other examples of this in the nineties with, with Northwestern and other schools and so point shaving has has often been a concern uh, we we saw this with the NBA and that referee who who may have used his power to you know, position scores and games in certain ways like that. You also see this with bracket pools. You know, this is why Rick Neuheisel lost his job when he was the coach at the University of Washington, because he was engaged in gambling, because he was uh, participating in NCAA tournament bracket pool. Uh, and so the integrity of sports and questions about that and scandals about that when it comes to gambling in particular have abounded forever. We also think about this in terms of recruiting, you know, these recruiting networks and paying players and all of these things that were illegal under um, NCAA rules for, for a, over a century um, creates this, this, this moment for all these different scandals. Um, and you've had these concerns. So, so this concern about gambling and, and, and what's going to mean for respectability and the integrity of the game. This is why for a long time, it was you know, nobody would put a professional team in, in Las Vegas. And now you have the Raiders of the NFL and, and the Golden Knights of the NHL there in Las Vegas. And they're actually trying to seize on the popularity of gambling, which is sort of this irony and this sort of come full circle moment for American sport history. Uh, but again, there's still these questions about what are these connections going to mean when it comes to uh, connecting with um, uh, organized crime. Andrew, I want to thank you for being on our podcast. It really has enriched uh, the uh, the intersection of sport and uh, corruption, organized crime. Do you have any concluding thoughts for us as we wrap things up here? Uh, thanks for having me. I think uh, one thing I would keep uh, the question is not just with organized crime, but with within sports particularly is why are these things illegal? Uh, with organized crime, there's a maybe a more of an obvious point here, but but some of the rules in, in sport. Um, sort of shows some of the hypocrisies, some of the, the weird nature. Uh, you know, the NCAA itself was a cartel, uh, which some people would argue is organized crime or, or at least organized theft of, of the, the labor of unpaid amateur athletes. And so thinking of these ways that, you know, it helps us become more, uh, more critical in the way we think about what we're consuming. Special thanks to Dr. Andrew McGregor for sitting down and sharing his expertise in sports history with us. We appreciate it. 
Keep an eye out for his work in publications like the Washington Post, his breakdowns on the history of college football and how the sport plays a role in the political, social, and economic life of the country are fascinating. I also mentioned a book by Warren Goldstein entitled Playing for Keeps and earlier in this episode. If you want to know more about the history of early baseball as well as some of the ways that people, shall we say, got creative to get ahead, um, check out Playing for Keeps. And Andrew mentioned the name Randy Roberts a few minutes ago. Roberts is a pillar in sports history, especially boxing. And one of my favorite books that Roberts wrote is entitled Papa Jack. And it's a detailed history of Jack Johnson, the first African-American heavyweight champion of the world. But there are all kinds of choices when it comes to Randy Roberts, so you can take your pick when you have a minute. Lastly, several years ago, Ken Burns put together a multi-episode documentary succinctly entitled Baseball. The series tackles the issue of the Reserve Clause, the Black Sox scandal, Babe Ruth, and so, so much more. I highly recommend it. That's all for now. We'll continue to make these bonus episodes a featured part of the podcast so we can underscore how the world of organized crime intersects with other aspects of American history. But for right now, be well.